The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And I'm in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Would uh, suggest you go to miningstocks.com miningstocks.com to uh, subscribe to either newsletter. Put your name on a waiting list if you're interested in signing up for Chen's letter. Put your name on his waiting list. Uh, He will be accepting new subscribers during the first two weeks of October. Each uh, new quarter he accepts new subscribers. Uh, You can go to miningstocks to sign up for my newsletter anytime. Also, like to encourage you to send your questions, comments, praises, and criticisms to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four taylor at gmail.com we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable our sponsors for today's show are vino silver and gold mines novo resources rn resources calinex resources and balmoral resources this week mrs taylor and i are in portugal visiting family members and also taking a bit of a vacation i do hate to break away from the office now because as i have been writing to my subscribers i think we are facing some very tumultuous times in the equity markets actually i think we are facing a bear market that could well take the dow down between a thousand and two thousand points from the current levels by the end of the next month or so and so while my next two weekly radio shows have been pre-recorded i may record some special podcast comments on the markets from my home in Portugal. Those remarks will be posted on my podcast page at jtaylormedia.com, and those of you on my radio mailing list will receive a special notice if and when I do a special podcast. If you are not on my radio mailing list and would like to be, send a request to questions taylor at gmail.com, questions the number four, taylor at gmail.com. The main reason the Western world is in such dire straits is largely due to the Federal Reserve Bank and its destruction of capitalism by disallowing price discovery of capital through interest rate manipulation. This is a crime of all crimes against humanity, not only because of the theft of property that results from the Fed's manipulation, but because it has made possible the funding of the NATO killing machine that is being used by the powers behind the throne in their efforts to establish a one-world government. All I can say is God have mercy on the soul of America 
because of this very sinful act against the humanity and against the rest of the world's population. This past week in my weekly newsletter, feeding off the excellent work of Dan Oliver, I explained how the mechanics of interest rate manipulation has set the stage for an absolutely certain financial market catastrophe. There is no getting out of it. I am absolutely convinced of that. The only thing in question is the timing. But based on the work of several technical analysts, as well as many fundamental analysts, as well as my own observations, I believe we are on the verge of a major disruption in the global markets. In fact, I will be greatly surprised if equity markets are not down by a very substantial amount by the time I return from Portugal on October 2nd. So look out for emails notifying you of special market comments at jtaylormedia.com, jtaylormedia.com. Today's show is titled, Why Do So Many Countries Hate America? What Does It Matter? Richard Mayberry and Max Porterfield return as guests. American politicians assume they are so good and wise and noble that they know what is best for the rest of the world. President McKinley boasted that he would Christianize the Filipinos, but they were already Christian. He went ahead and killed 220,000 of them anyway. Behind this arrogance is the banker's greed that funds propaganda to Americans to gain their support for endless wars, designed in part to keep NATO in control of the energy markets. Mayberry provides insights into how Turkey's increasing involvement in the Middle East wars is part of that plan and the importance of maintaining the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. These wars are essential in maintaining control of the old oil markets in order to maintain control of the world's reserve currency so that the wealthy bankers who control the system can continue to issue counterfeit money out of thin air to dominate the world and enrich themselves at the expense of the masses. In just a few minutes, we will be taking our first commercial break, and then Max Porterfield will tell us of a very important new polymetallic discovery that has the potential to generate great wealth for Kalanex shareholders. I believe the market is telling us something about the prospects for Kalanex because during a year when virtually all junior resource stocks have collapsed in price, subscribers to my newsletter enjoyed a 70% gain in that stock so far. And with a new discovery that Max will tell you about that was just made this past week, this could be, in my view, just the beginning of much better things for Kalanex. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away because when I return, Max Porterfield will be with me, and then at about half past the hour, I'll be talking to Richard Mayberry. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metals supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. 
Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Max Porterfield. He is the president and CEO of Calinex Mines. Calinex Mines trades in Toronto under the symbol CNX. It's on the Venture Exchange there. Or you can buy it in the United States, as I have, under the symbol CLLXF. That's C-L-L-X-F. Uh, there are 47 million shares outstanding, approximately that. I was seeing it trading recently at around 23 cents in U.S. money, giving it uh, a market cap of uh, about $11 million or so. When a year when most all mining and mine exploration stocks have really been hard hit, Max Porterfield's Calinex is uh, one of the only a handful of stocks in positive territory this year in my newsletter. When I first recommended it, well, it's gained about 50% this year. Actually, I, I picked the stock up in February. In my introduction to this company and my uh, to my subscribers in my newsletter, I said, quote, Kalanex Mines is a spinoff from Kalanan Mines, but as, you see, but as you will see, it is a spinoff with a great head start towards building what I believe can be a mineral deposit worth many times this company's current market valuation. The percentage upside potential for those who buy these shares at this current price is, I believe, very considerable. End of quote. Well, to help you understand why I said what I did back in February of this year and why I'm more convinced than ever that I was right, let me welcome Max Porterfield, the president and CEO of Calinex Mines. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Max. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you. You uh, have kept your eyes out for an opportunity, and you, it seems to me like you've really found one. Uh, and it was last week, actually, uh, you put out some very significant, and I think exciting news, announcing a new a polymetallic discovery on your uh, Pine Bay project in uh, Manitoba. Now, I want to ask you about that, of course, but first, for the sake of uh, people who may not yet have heard your story, can you give us, you know, just to get an overview of what you've got going there in your Manitoba project? Well, our Pine Bay and our Flin Flon projects that are both in very close proximity to uh, Flin Flon, Manitoba, where Hud Bay's uh, operations are based out of, and they operate their 777 mine and receive feed from another mine called the Reed Lake Mine, uh, located about 130 kilometers away. Uh, so with that being said, uh, that project portfolio is in very close proximity to that infrastructure. That infrastructure that Hud Bay is operating uh, has dwindling ore feed to go into that, to, to feed that infrastructure and the concentrator there. Uh, with the 777 mine, uh, having a mine life 
going to be depleted by 2020 and the Reed Lake mine by 2019. Uh, with Hub Bay currently having no new ore to f- feed those uh, that that infrastructure there, we see it as a great opportunity to explore these two projects that haven't been uh, explored by uh, in a modern day context and really haven't um, had any exploration done on them in the past, say, 20, 25 years or so. But this is a land package that has been consolidated by uh, our chairman and Canadian Mining Hall of Fame inductee, Mike Mazlowski, who's had a number of uh, successful discoveries within the Flin Flon camp. Uh, and it was previously uh, explored for and uh, operated by uh, some of the, the who's who of, uh, of mining and exploration, including uh, Hud Bay themselves, Placerdome, Newmont, and Cameco. So we see this area as a great area to explore. And uh, when we do uh, make an economic discovery, uh, there is an infrastructure needing that ore uh, in the very short term. Well, that certainly uh, it certainly does give you an advantage over finding a deposit somewhere in Timbuktu, far away from infrastructure and uh, and ready um, milling facilities. Uh, Hud Bay is there, of course, a household name in Canada, at least if not in the United States, but a major mining company, a very successful company over the years. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly one that would be able to work with you, I would think, but you don't have any sort of formal agreement at all with Hud Bay at this stage, do you? No, there's no formal agreement with Hud Bay at this time, and, and like you said, they are the, the choice uh, partner and operator. We have a deep amount of respect for them. Uh, to kind of give you a, a little bit of perspective, they've operated within the Flint Flon Greenstone Belt for over 90 years. In fact, wow. they've taken 26 of the 32 mines that have gone into production there uh, into production, so uh, they, they definitely... Um, you know, have a stake in, in kind of what we're doing, you know, from the exploration standpoint, um, kind of moving forward. Yeah, and I notice uh, in looking at the map, your ground uh, surrounds the existing Hud Bay facility, at least I, I think their mining facility that they have in place now. It certainly seems as if you could find something of, of value, that's economic value right there, that it would certainly be worth something to the Hud Bay. Hud Bay, of course, has a, a large amount of ground, uh, I think, to the west of where you are, you know, your main deposit right now. But um, any sense of whether they're having any success and or, or do they sort of keep that close to the vest in terms of their own exploration efforts? Well, I mean, in terms of their own exploration efforts, uh, they've made it very public that they haven't had the success uh, that they'd like to see, uh, unfortunately, there with extending the uh, mine lives at 777 in Reed Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made that public on some earnings to conference calls with the analyst and discuss that. Uh, with that being said, they do have an exploration budget of uh, between, I think, roughly $15 million over the next few years uh, on an annual basis to conduct exploration uh, within the, the camp. And I think there would be a, you know, a focus on close proximity to that infrastructure. With that being said, uh, Kalinex is uh, probably the second largest claim holder within, within 30 kilometers of that infrastructure uh, outside of Hud Bay. But our land package, again, hasn't been subject to modern-day exploration, uh, whereas a lot of the, uh, the Hud Bay ground, they've been able to kind of develop that and test those targets. Uh, with that being said, on top of that, in fact, uh, we did put this out in a recent press release, but where we're drilling this, um, this summer right now uh, on our Pine Bay project, they've got a, a drill rig that's just about two kilometers, two and a half kilometers to the south of us, right on our claim boundaries. They're drilling mm-hmm. about, see... 250 to 300 meters off our claim boundaries on the same kind of horizon that hosts that Centennial Mine and Sourdough Mine 
Hmm. Uh, sourdough is our deposit, and the sourdough deposit being on our property, the historic Centennial Mine being just to the south, just past our claims on Hud Bay's claims. Uh, and I think um, we're all looking for us to be successful, and we'd like to see them to be successful as well. Any chance you might put some drill uh, drill holes down close to that same structure that they're drilling on their property? Yeah, that'll be something that we'll look at. If you look uh, at the, the exploration that we've done on our sour on our Pine Bay project, from a geophysical standpoint, uh, modern geophysics only covers, I would say, the uh, maybe the top half or a little bit more than that. So there's been no geophysics from the sourdough deposit that I'm describing to you to, down to the the uh, Centennial Mine on their claims. There's been no mm-hmm. modern-day geophysics on our property. So that'll be looking uh, something that we'll be looking to do this winter as we conduct follow-up exploration from the summer campaign. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, we do see that kind of uh, as an opportunity you know, going forward. Well, this um, exploration potential that you have there looks looks massive. And, and again, it excited me. Your press release that came out on the 14th of September announcing a new discovery, a new uh, volcanogenic massive sulfide discovery there. Talk to us a little bit about that. I, I, I see it's about 100 meters east of your current sourdough deposit, right? So it's, it's right in the same vicinity, but it's a, a brand new discovery, is it, Max? Yeah, we, what we actually did is uh, bigger than just, uh, I think, a discovery of some new mineralization. We actually discovered a new new horizon that hadn't previously been drilled before, and that happens very uh, not too often, I would say. Uh, so, if you look, uh, and if you ever have a chance to go to our website and see this for your listeners, but the sourdough deposit is what's is hosted in what's known as the Centennial Sourdough Horizon. It also hosted that historic Centennial Mine. So, we were drilling some geophysical targets um, that were underneath, uh, this particular target was underneath the known sourdough deposit because it's been very shallow drilling and a lot of these large ore bodies have been found at you know 800 meters of depth. Yeah. So we were putting a hole underneath the sourdough deposit to test to see if there's a, a down dip extension of that known deposit uh, and there wasn't successful but what we did do is, and I really got to give it credit to our great technical team here at Kalinex, uh, but they noticed uh, our project geologists and our team noticed right off the go uh, when we came out of that known horizon that hosted, again, that sourdough deposit in Centennial Mine, we went back into what's known as an alteration zone, a very highly altered uh, rocks uh, that have sericite and chlorite. But this is kind of the rocks you want to see in immediate uh, close proximity to a deposit. So with that being said, we call it uh, no shutting off rocks. You don't shut the rig off in that type of rocks. We kept the rig going, and that hit us 176 um, meters of alteration zone. And when we came out of that alteration zone, we hit that 7.4 meters of mineralization uh, that is also a new horizon. So with that being said, it's very, very exciting because uh, it opens up a lot of different potential for exploration at the property because there is no historic drilling in this horizon uh, or where we hit this mineralization uh, in anywhere, any near vicinity of it. And again, these things can span very large distances and it can host multiple deposits, as you can see that um, has historically occurred with the uh, Centennial Sourdough Horizon. It's just immediately kind of uh, due west there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, always the problem for junior mining companies, especially in this kind of a market environment, is exploring and drilling uh, without undue dilution. And you've got a, a nice, very nice, tight shear structure at this point in time. 
How well funded are you, Max, to go forward, and what sort of a budget will you have, and what will you be looking to do uh, going forward over the next year or six months at least? What what are what do you have in mind for the company in terms of budget exploration, and, and what are your targets going to be? Will you be following up on this new discovery, I, I'm sure? Yeah, so what we're doing in terms of, uh, to answer your question in terms of exploration, and then I'll, I'll discuss uh, the capital uh, thereafter, mm-hmm. is the summer program that we're doing going forward is going to be drilling out on a stratigraphic basis, uh, really to try to cover a one-kilometer uh, strike length from that discovery of this new horizon. So what we're doing is going to be two additional holes uh, in this program to cover that area, use the geophysics and lithogeochemistry to help guide us within that system for follow-up drilling that we're looking to conduct uh, this this upcoming winter. This upcoming winter will be focused on uh, follow-up from, from the drilling that we've done this summer, including that uh, broad-off-hole anomaly that we found uh, where we've hit that mineralization mm-hmm. uh, to kind of expand that. And again, we uh, see a, quite a bit of opportunity with that mineral, mineralization that we found in that first hole because it is interpreted to be on, a, on a, the edge of a, a larger conductive body. So that the follow-up for that will happen this, this winter, and then we'll be drilling over a broader area the, to finish up this summer uh, program. So mm-hmm. in terms of the capital, we did raise uh, $3.4 million recently uh, in a private placement that we closed on July 31st, and we raised an additional roughly $400,000 uh, from Warren ex- being, warrants being exercised by our existing shareholders. So as of October, I'm sorry, August 1st, we had $4 million in capital in, in the, the bank. We're keeping our overhead uh, uh, and burn rate very low, so we're probably burning roughly $50,000 to $60,000 a month, and that's excluding any exploration. And we've got, uh, we'll be spending roughly $2 million uh, in the ground and doing exploration between now and December of next year. Uh, and that that also uh, will also have roughly about two to two and a half years of operating cop, uh, capital aside from that. So we, we are very well uh, capitalized. Uh, we brought in in this recent finance, and we're very excited to have resource capital funds, uh, a very well-regarded private equity fund uh, that specializes in the, um, the natural resource space uh, to now be our largest shareholders uh, owning 18% of the company. Well, you, I think you've had a, a historical resource there at some time in the past, not a 4301. I mean, what do you think is the best the best way to go for the company? To spend a lot of money and get a 4301 or to more do more step-out drill holes and establish uh, potential for a very extensive uh, deposit? Yeah, so I think really to the, the latter of that, I mean, the, the, the product does have multiple resources uh, and short deposits on them. Uh, the largest of which is the Pine Bay deposit. Uh, our focus is going to be identifying new mineralization uh, that's high grade and, uh, and you know high enough grade to potentially be economic. Drill out that depo- that you know, deposit as we discover it, and then eventually go out and do a forty three one hundred one resource. Uh, I, I don't think uh, in terms of managing costs and expectations of the market at this time, I think it's it's better spent to uh, to to see what is the potential and extent of this new uh, zone within this horizon that we've discovered 
uh, and then also you know see what we find with other other drilling that we're doing to test these targets uh, this summer and this upcoming winter. Uh, you mentioned your largest shareholder. Who, who are some of the other shareholders in your uh, in your company, and and how much uh, does management have uh, in in this company? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I think uh, just to, expanding upon uh, resource capital funds mm-hmm. and, and uh, how pleased we are to have them as a uh, as an investor and a shareholder is because they they're very patient investors and take a, a long term. Uh, approach to the investments they make. Mm-hmm. They're a two and a half billion dollar private equity fund. Uh, they've deployed, I think, roughly seven billion dollars into resources since going uh, inception in 1998. But they're very, very selective investors. They've only invested in roughly just over, I think, 135 companies since 1998. Mm-hmm. And they primarily, uh, they've always focused their investments to the latter stage uh, in terms of, uh, of the development stage of, of projects to construction stage not early stage exploration. So with their investment, while we're so excited, you know, we're probably the second or third maybe uh, early stage exploration company they've ever invested in. Uh, so we're very pleased to have them on. In addition to resource capital funds, we do have shareholders like Carlos Savelli, who is uh, out of Switzerland, and uh, Monte Carlo. Uh, he's a gentleman that's got a, va- a very vast track record uh, in the natural resource space, he's seeded 12 companies that went to billion-dollar market caps throughout his career. And this isn't his first rodeo, uh, so to speak, in the Flint and camp. He's also had successes with our predecessor, Kalanane Mines, that went to Kalanane Royalties as a, you know, a, a large investor of that company, as well as Mike Maslowski and Granges when they discovered the Trout Lake Mine mm-hmm. in the early 1980s. He was a large investor of that. Uh, and uh, in fact, that Trout Lake mine that Mike discovered, uh, as it still stands today, is one of the five largest deposits uh, or mines ever discovered in the Flin Flon camp over the past hundred years. So, you know, guys like Carlo uh, in the company have got a you know very well good understanding in terms of what we're up to. Have been extremely supportive. Uh, and, but in terms of the overall capital structure, you know, resource capital only eighteen uh, percent between management, close associates like Carlo. In resource capital, over 60% of the floats tightly held. Uh, on a fully diluted basis, management uh, owns roughly 10% of the shares outstanding. Well, that's that's very good. Uh, I like that a lot. And uh, only 47 million shares out there to start with, so you can see the float is very manageable at a time when it needs to be with the markets uh, as weak as they are. Well, I'd certainly have to think that your resource capital and and uh, the likes of Mr. Savelli, you know, they must be looking at HUD Bay and HUD Bay's needs, and they know that they know the area. Uh, Mr. Savelli certainly does, and uh, they had to be looking at this. I mean, if if resource capital is coming in and it's one of the few, only two or three, I think you said the third perhaps, uh, exploration kind of a situation they came into, they must be looking at this as a fairly high probability success story given everything that comes into play here, including the infrastructure in HUD Bay and all that and, and, and the geology. So it really looks very promising to me, Max. I don't know if there's anything else uh, that you think needs to be highlighted before we conclude our discussion today. I guess I should ask you drivers, what should our listeners be looking for in terms of what might drive this stock uh, higher over the next six months to a year? Well, I definitely think it's going to be how active we are from an exploration standpoint. And uh, again, we're in the midst of our summer phase two program that's going to be roughly 3,000 meters when it's all said and done in drilling. Uh, and then we're immediately uh, there, not too short thereafter, we'll be uh, conducting our winter program of exploration uh, beginning probably in the December to January time frame. So we're going to have constant news flow. And as we continue to uh, really 
do drilling and do geophysical work and test uh, the real potential that we have here at our Pine Bay and Flon projects, I think those will definitely be catalysts to drive and propel the stock higher based upon those results. So, no, we're very, very excited to get to work here. Really appreciate you being an endorser and uh, a supporter of the company and having us on your show. Uh, so thank you again for that. And I guess and to wrap things up, if any of your listeners have any questions on the company, would like to speak to myself or any of our colleagues, uh, don't, don't hesitate to give us a call. Uh, you can reach us at any time uh, here at our home office. Uh, telephone number, if they want, is 604-605-0885. Yeah, and there's some, uh, a lot of good information there on your website as well. Can you tell us what, our, what your website is? I should have had that marked down. I don't. Yeah, no problem. And our website has uh, got all our information on there as well. It's calinex.ca, and that's spelled C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Excellent. Very very good. Uh, certainly something uh, I'm pleased about. As I said, one of the few exploration stories in my newsletter that is actually up and up nicely this year. Congratulations and a, a job well done so far, Max. We'll look to talk to you again sometime in the near future. All right. Thank you again for having me, Jay. Okay, folks. It's uh, time for a commercial break, but don't go away because when we come back, Richard Mayberry will be with me. Richard always has some very important things to say about geopolitics and economics uh, and the markets. So uh, Rick Mayberry right after the break. Don't go away. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business, for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol BALMF and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol BAR. Calinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Calinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Calinex by visiting calinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Calinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Richard Mayberry. Richard uh, is the publisher of U.S. and World Early Warning Report for Investors, and he's written a whole lot of other books, uh, all of which I recommend you take a peek at or buy them, look at them, study them, actually, uh, because he provides a tremendous amount of wisdom. Um, you know, we really need to understand history to understand better why things are the way they are now and why people feel the way they do uh, about each other. And Richard does a remarkable job in his work in helping us understand that. And uh, I would suggest that you go to richardjmayberry.com, richardjmayberry.com, uh, to, um, to learn more about Richard and his background. We also have a, uh, his biography is posted at the Voice America Business Channel, my page at that channel. So you can go there to, uh, to read his bio as well. Thanks for joining me again, Richard. Always a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you. I always uh, like being here. Uh, you uh, do a great job on this. I, I really enjoy your show because you do your homework before the show. And so you really know the subjects, and uh, and I appreciate that very much. Well, I you know I have people on for a purpose because they're saying things that are very important to me. Uh, and today we'd like to talk to you about uh, the content, some of the content in your last newsletter, uh, specifically Turkey, Turkey and the Oil Corridor. You said in that issue, you said, and I quote, the most important wars being fought now are in the oil corridor. Can you define the geographical limits of the oil corridor and help our listeners understand why wars in this area of the world are so important at this time in our history? Yeah, um, that's the oil corridor is the area that contains well over half of all the world's oil supply and um, uh, oil reserves and the oil that's in the ground. And that area runs from about the top of the Caspian Sea, which uh, is in uh, Western Russia, um, down to the um, Arabian Sea, and then um, in the east uh, into Iran, and then uh, in the west all to the Mediterranean. You, you know, I call that the oil corridor, and um, it is alleged to have, I should say, um, most of the world's oil in that one small area. And that's where so many wars are fought. Uh, it's, it's just uh, not only full of oil, but it's full of chaos. And uh, I've always recommended that the U.S. government get out of there, uh, that we couldn't, uh, couldn't have anything but our own uh, involvement in the wars if the U.S. government remained uh, in that area, and you know, of course, they they didn't listen to me, <laughs> and uh, that's why we're in all these wars now. Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's not some other reasons as well, Richard. You know, um, after Nixon took us off, or yeah, after Nixon took us off the gold standard, Kissinger went to Saudi Arabia and established the petrodollar, in which the petrodollar then provided a bid under the dollar that wouldn't have been there otherwise. And a lot of people think that part of the reason that we're in the Middle East. Uh, is in order to perpetuate or to protect uh, that uh, dominance of the of the oil markets. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Certainly, I want to. We want to get into Turkey and how that might fit into it. But do you think that may be one of the reasons that we're there? Yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure it's one of the reasons. There's never just one reason for sure. the war. 
uh, you know, every politician who's involved in a decision-making process about going to war has his own personal agendas, whatever he thinks is important. And, um, you know, all of these agendas come together in that meeting room and, and then they all uh, converge on the idea of where, you know, this war is going to do me some good for whatever reason and, and then they declare the war or at least get into it. They don't yeah. really declare them anymore. They just get into them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unconstitutionally, but they do it nonetheless. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's very helpful, I think, to, to always keep in mind that each politician has his own personal agenda, his or her own personal agenda, and when enough of those agendas come together and point at war, that's when you get a war. Yeah, indeed. And thank you for that, because that's an insight that I had never thought about before. It sort of puts, uh, it sort of puts aside the notion of conspiracy or conspiracy uh, by one or two people. It's got to be a group of people, as you mentioned. And, and um, mm-hmm. it, it seems to be sort of running out of control a lot of times. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, except it does to those people that are in control. Well, speaking of that oil corridor, smack dab in the middle of this corridor is Turkey. That's a country that has been about as pro-West as any Muslim country, I suppose. I, I think you would agree with that, right? Probably? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, uh, for a long, long time, it was the only Muslim member of NATO. Uh, it was joined by Albania in 2009. So there's only two Muslim countries in NATO, and, and Turkey's really the big one. Um, they are also um, the military giant of that area too and that's a very important point to keep in mind they are militarily dominant in that area because they're part of NATO they have access to all of NATO's intelligence and weapons not all the weapons but most of them and um, the training and all of that and and so the Turks uh, have this military tradition that comes out of the Ottoman Empire and by hook, being hooked up to NATO they are the dominant military force in that area. Yeah, and of course, ninety-nine percent or something like that of the of the people that live in Turkey are are Muslim, and so there is a natural conflict, uh, ideologically, uh, religiously, uh, philosophically, about how governments are supposed to be run or how sh- how they should be run between the West uh, and uh, and the Isla- uh, Islamic uh, folks. Uh, so it seems as though there's there's quite a conflict going on within Turkey itself over West or not, right? Is, is am I right about that? That's right. Yeah. Um, back uh, in World War One, uh, a man named Kemal Ataturk was uh, the hero of World War One to the Turks. He beat the British and the other allies at that time, and pretty much threw the you know, Western powers out of Turkey. But the Western powers were able to dismantle Turkey, Turkey's Ottoman Empire. And so uh, Ataturk believed that the reason that the Turks lost their empire was that Turkey was too backward. It was looking eastward toward the, the Islamic world rather than westward to the Christian world. And he said that the Turks should start adopting Western ways. And the U.S. government, and this is a really important point, very key point, the U.S. government adopted Ataturk's model for handling the Islamic world. The Ataturk said we need a mixture of Islam and democracy and, uh, and the Western technology that goes with it. Um, the problem is that 
that there's this fundamental difference between the Islamic world and the Western world that is not reconcilable. And that mm -hmm. is that the West believes that the way you find out what's right and wrong is through majority vote. That's called democracy. And the way Muslims believe you find right and wrong is in the Quran. They believe right and wrong is determined by God. The West believes it's determined by majority vote. And that's a contradiction that is not reconcilable. And that's why Turkey is always internally in this, this uh, conflict. There are, there are millions in Turkey who want to go West. There are millions who want to go East. And they are always on the brink of civil war because of this. And by Washington adopting Kemal Ataturk's belief that the two could be married, um, Washington is over there in the Mideast trying to democratize millions and millions of people who are never going to believe in it. They are never going to be democratic because they believe right and wrong comes from God. Now, <laughs> I mean, it is a hopeless situation for the U.S. to be in. Right. It's an agenda that, that Washington cannot possibly achieve. And I've been you know, harping on this for I don't know how many years, that there's nothing Washington can do in the Mideast except make things worse. Well, as you point out in your letter, there's, the Muslims have a, have a point. They have a reason to be skeptical about democracy. Um, maybe just comment on that. What, are, what do they see about democracy? Aside from the Koran, they certainly um, you know, believe that you know, that's what they need to live by. That's their religion. They believe that they need to live by that. I would suggest that some Christians also believe uh, that we should live according to, the, to God's will as well. But, that's a, but clearly... Uh, there's uh, Christians seem to be quite mixed up on that as well because they've uh, they've adopted democracy. But but you know you you made some points about why Muslims are aside from the Quran they can look and see what's going on in the West and it's not all so good. Yeah, uh, for a long time, and you know it was easy for for Ataturk, for instance, to sell this idea that democracy is a superior um, way to do things because the West was so much more technologically advanced. It was advancing economically much more quickly than the Islamic world. And so there was some credibility to it. Well, now, of course, um, the Muslims can look at the Western world, uh, for instance, the, the economic catastrophe that is Europe, and they can see that uh, this idea of majority rule <laughs> doesn't work out too well in the long run. Um, majority rule or democracy... Um, they might say, is two wolves and a sheep voting to decide what's for lunch. <laughs> That's what I was and, looking for, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and they can see that now. They can see where that goes. And most, I think, an awful lot of Americans and Europeans can see that now, too. Yeah. That, that uh, this idea that we're going to vote on uh, who to steal from and, and who to subsidize um, that's not a good way to run an economy, and now it's falling apart all over the place. So the credibility of the Western model that the, the Muslims were offered is evaporating away very quickly now as the West gets more deeply into its economic problems, its welfare state. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to convince 1.6 billion Muslims uh, we can't do it Logically, so we're doing it with our bombs and our bullets, I guess, uh, to to convert to Christianity and I, I or to the West anyway, if not Christianity. 
And, uh, you know, obviously, as you say, it's a, it's a no-win situation. Well, I have to ask, you know, you, you, in your letter, you seem to be suggesting that American policy uh, is moving more closely, if I understood you right. We're moving more closely in line or trying to align ourselves more closely, perhaps, with Turkey at this point in time. And I, I had had to think and wonder if this might not have something to do with the fact that uh, Turkey has agreed uh, with Russia to have a pipeline built and constructed that would go through Turkey and that would deliver gas, I think, to Western Europe. Do you think, do you think that's a concern of, of the United States and, and NATO? And, um, and might that also have something to do, um, you know, might our desi- desire to move closer to Turkey be, have something to do with Russia's uh, moves into Assyria right now? Yeah, um, uh, you know, definitely uh, the U.S. politicians are worried about uh, the, you know, about Moscow moving south. Um, and uh, there's Turkey right in the way of, of Russia. A good point is that the Turks and the Russians have been fighting with each other for many centuries. It's an ancient hatred. And um, there's... There's no reconciling that either, because because essentially that goes back to the old religious wars. This mm-hmm. is, is you know the Russia has a Christian heritage, uh, Turkey has a Muslim heritage, so they are ancient enemies. And um, the fact that Turkey is part of NATO means that Russia is pushing up against NATO down there where Turkey is, and the U.S. politicians are all concerned about that. And I think though. A larger concern here is that the U.S. politicians, I think, now I can't, I don't have any hard evidence on this, but I'm pretty convinced that um, they have come to the conclusion that the Mideast is going to be run by somebody they don't like, and that somebody, it's going to be run by somebody who hates Washington, because it's getting so that everybody hates Washington. Sure, for good reason. Uh, yeah, right. Now, these poli- U.S. politicians have their noses stuck in the business of, of practically every country in the world. And in every country in the world, people are getting very angry. So I think they have reconciled themselves to the fact that the Mideast will be run by somebody who hates Washington. And their only choice in the matter, if they have any at all, is to try to find somebody who doesn't hate Washington too much. Yeah. Um, and I think they have decided they can live with the Turks. The Turks, um, you know, don't have a lot of good to say about Washington, but they don't hate Washington anywhere near as much as, let's say, Islamic State does. Mm-hmm. So I have a suspicion there is a secret plan in Washington to try to ease Turkey into these wars and have the Turks uh, eventually take over the Mideast and reestablish the Ottoman Empire in that area. Uh, and, and actually, I hate to admit this, but I think it's probably a, a fairly workable plan. It could be pulled off. Uh, among other things, the people who live in the Mideast aren't real happy with their own governments. And they're, they're sick to death of the wars and the other kinds of chaos. There. Mm-hmm. And I, I really suspect that if there was a realistic chance of the Turks taking over the Mideast, um, that millions and millions of Muslims would jump at that. They would consider that to be a better system than what they've got now. So um, it makes a lot of sense to me, not that I think that it's a 100% chance it would, it would work, but I think it's 
you know, putting Turkey, re- reviving the Ottoman Empire, putting Turkey back in charge of the Mideast is the most realistic plan that Washington could come up with, the most workable plan within their their assumption that they are entitled to run the world. Mm-hmm. And they would see the Turks as one of, of their puppets. Right. Very interesting. Well, then, when you speak of the Ottoman Empire, empire then, does that pretty much encompass the the oil corridor that you're talking about? Yes, yes. Um, there, there was a day uh, when the Turks were so influential, they the Turkish culture controlled so much of the world that you could travel all the way from roughly Italy to the Pacific speaking only Turkic. Mm-hmm. That wow. much of, of the world... Um, and from from northern Kazakhstan all the way to the Indian Ocean. Um, so when was yeah. this, Richard? What time in history was this? Was that true? Um, well, that's a really important point. It's still true. Yeah. Okay. Those cultures are <laughs> those cultures are still Turkic. Uh huh. It's wide swath all the way from Italy to the Pacific. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're still Turkic in in all those countries, but not all those countries, but a lot of those countries across there. So the Turks, at first, when the Soviet Empire fell apart back 25 years ago, the Turks were thinking in terms of reviving the Ottoman Empire because these Turkic cultures already existed, and it would have been probably pretty easy to do, uh, especially since Turkey, Turkic rule would appear much more comfortable to them than, the, for instance, the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Turks wanted to, to go west. They wanted to hook up with Europe and, and join in with the Western culture. And so they really dropped that plan. But I kind of suspect that maybe that plan is being revived now. And mm-hmm. um, you, you really, if you compare Turkey's political situation, bad as it is, with the political situations of that whole area in, in Asia there, the Turks don't look so bad, <laughs> right? And I think I think tens of millions of people over there would warm up to the idea of being part of a new Ottoman Empire. Right. Very interesting. Well, I, I, at the same time, though, uh, again, okay, so maybe they could have their Ottoman Empire reestablished, but uh, with ultimate rule being NATO. That's probably the way Washington wanted to go. Right. Uh, I I I think very quickly the Turks would decide they don't need Washington anymore. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting because he, here's what I want to get to yet before we've we, you know before we run out of time because that's always what happens with you. Uh, you know, you talked about some very important things. There was some attacks I think on the 20th of July that mm-hmm. took place in Turkey. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Where did they come from? Any idea of what, what's going on with that? Nobody knows. Um, there, I never saw any evidence on it. There, there were some accusations that it was uh, Islamic State who did it, um, and the Turks, the Turkish government, just jumped right at it and um, started bombing uh, Islamic State. So they 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 were attacked by somebody in July, and they got into the war. Um, now I have to look at that and wonder who had something to gain from that. Um, maybe it was a false flag incident that was cooked up by the Turkish regime. Maybe it was cooked up by Washington. 
we'll probably never know. But uh, it looks like the Turks are moving into the war now against the Islamic State. And, and this could be the beginning of Washington's plan to help the Turks take over the Mideast. Because mm -hmm. somebody's eventually going to end up running the Mideast. Mm -hmm. um, and the question is who? And my guess is Washington's choice is Turkey. Well, that's interesting because you, you mentioned then um, the Turks started bombing after that event. And, and on the 24th, Turkey's president made a, a statement. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, about a, a, a change in direction or something like that? Yeah. Um, I don't remember his exact words, but, yeah. but basically what he said is that we are changing course and we are getting into the war now. Um, they've been resisting that up until the summer. And uh, suddenly they got attacked and they turned right around and now they're getting into the war. Um, yeah. So that, you know, I began writing about this possibility of the Turks taking over the Middle East long ago, at least 10 years ago. And um, it kind of looks like we're headed in that direction now. They've started looking away from Europe and they're looking to reestablish the empire. Yeah, and if they bombed the Islamic states, that would make that would make sense—a pro-West uh, move, it would seem. But here's the yep. direct words, and I'm looking at your newsletter now, Richard, uh, mm -hmm. which I have in front of me. On on July 24th, Turkey's president announced that quote, "We have now undertaken a much different battle, and we will do whatever it takes in this fight until the end." End of quote. And then you mentioned on that same day. Secretary of State John Kerry said U.S. officials are now seeing a, quote, shift in what the Turks are prepared to do, end of quote. Right. Washington had been trying to push the Turks into getting into this war for years, um, you know, for reasons we already talked about. Turkey's yeah. part of NATO and, and all that. Um, and suddenly, bingo, you know, the Turks get attacked, and now the Turks are in the war. It's exactly what Washington's been wanting, and now they've got it. So, you know, I, and, you know, we can ask ourselves, now, are the Turkish politicians really stupid enough that they're being steered by Washington, or have they decided to sign on to this plan? And I, I have a suspicion that they've signed on. Yeah. And the big, big prize for them is the oil fields. Yeah, very interesting. Well, you know, I just have to wonder now, with just a, a couple of minutes left here, Richard, the United States, with its reserve currency, has been able to expand this empire. You know, it has a military, uh, a military capability second to none. Now, you mentioned, of course, in the in Asia, uh, we've left, we've slipped somewhat there. Perhaps if we want to dominate the Chinese, we're going to have to, you know, bolster things. I see the Japanese are being uh, a big fight in in Japan over uh, over the notion of allowing Japan to rearm itself and. Uh, and and protect probably members of the TPP. Uh, the, the Japanese are opposed to actually being involved uh, in uh, in going to war, even when they're not attacked. If other members of the TPP are attacked, I guess. And so there's a big fight going on there. But so, but in terms of world domination. I just have to wonder, it seems to me the whole notion of being able to have the world's reserve currency is absolutely imperative. And, and we're watching, as you mentioned, the, the Muslims looking around at the West and seeing it decay from inside out. The financial structure is absolutely in, in, you know, in chaos and, and ready, I think, to topple over. How long can this thing go on, I'm wondering? Financially, how long can we afford 
to do this. And, and isn't this the downfall of empires many times is they, they, they crumble from within? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they do. Um, there's, there's, as far as I know, there's always an economic component to the collapse of any empire. Um, it just, it's just too expensive. The, the reason that empires fall apart is they're not profitable. Uh, it's, it causes the home government to be hemorrhaging money all the time. And, and that's what's going on. Um, I, uh, I, I remember a statistic, now this is a long time ago, but um, at that time, Washington was spending $60 billion a year just to keep the Saudis and the other Arab oil dictators in power uh, in the Persian Gulf. Yeah. Um, that, and, and so Washington was spending a lot more to keep them in power mm-hmm. than... Um, than they were getting out of it. Oil. Yeah, yeah, they could have just bought the oil a whole lot cheaper than keeping their armed forces over there. You know what an aircraft yeah. carrier costs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? incredible. Well, this yeah. is the key question, and unfortunately, we're, we're out of time, Richard. Again, it's just always, it goes so fast with you. Uh, I just want to tell my listeners, uh, richardmayberry.com, go there. Learn more about his excellent newsletter, Early Warning Report. This is one I can't put down. I always read it as soon as it gets to me. And you just can't go wrong. Very reasonably priced service. Richard, thank you very much for being with us again. And I look forward to to doing it again, hopefully next month. And uh, we can talk about some of the key issues in your next month's newsletter. Yeah. Sure, definitely, and thank you, Jay. You do a great job. Thank well, you. I really love your work, and it's so important that people understand what's really going on and why it's going on uh, to make an informed decision. We didn't talk economics today, but you also provide some great advice in terms of how to prepare for the difficulties ahead that stem from these geopolitical issues and these financial uh, problems that we have. So thank you very much, yeah. Richard. And again, folks, check out Richard Mayberry and sign up for his newsletter. It's very important. Well, that's all the time we do have this week, folks. Next week I will be on vacation in Portugal so I'll be passing along my own remarks as a guest on the Laura Ellis show. In that show I'll talk about how I became a gold bug and why I think it's essential for investors to own at least a little of that precious metal uh, in the form of bullion as well as gold shares. And next, uh, the final week after that then I will be back in New York and I'll be talking to hedge fund manager Dave Kranzler. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. 
Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.